I need to know everything Who and the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But act like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws To turn to a ghost I need to know everything Now you'll be surprised At the info you get Is by letting them talk Hey everyone I'm Ashley Asty, And I'm curious Aren't you? I'm Curious Podcast brings the unfamiliar closer. I'm telling stories and sharing conversations with people who remind us that love demands we move toward justice and that we're all connected. This opening music is called Curious George by Nate Rose. All right, let's get to it. I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything. Who and the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche with five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now they ain't go harder than me. I was listening back to this episode last night, and I had to just text Richard after because I was so moved by his rawness and his vulnerability and his determined spirit. I just needed to tell him that I'm so excited to get this episode out into the world. I also love that I connected to Richard through these serendipitous connections of one person leads you to another who leads you to another, and I'm really glad that we met. He is a man who is compassionate and grateful and committed to serving in the world. There was a point in Richard's life where he didn't know if he'd ever come home from prison. When he was young, he was faced with a 25 years to life sentence and faced with the possibility of dying in prison. One day he suddenly knew he had to make a choice. He was going to be committed to loving all people, committed to love. Today he's been home for prison for three years and he absolutely embodies that love, embodies that compassion. And there's just this curiosity about him and this sense of wanting to make the most of his time, recognizing time as a gift. His words and story will move you and surprise you. They did for me. And I think remind you of the power of courage and faith and love. So that's my informal introduction. More formally, Richard is a dynamic public speaker and expert communicator with advanced leadership coaching and communication certifications. He graduated cum laude from California Coast University while he was incarcerated with a BS degree in health management. He's the only known incarcerated person to have earned the status of associate trainer for John Maxwell's Equip Leadership Program. While incarcerated for 21 years, he led over 35 transformational coaching seminars and workshops and received a certificate of recognition from the California State Senate for Crops Alcohol and Other Drug Counselor Certification Program. He's the host of the Prison Post podcast, which is really fantastic and powerful, and please subscribe to it. It's focused on the stories of personal transformation, of life after incarceration, and what success looks like in reentry and coming home from prison. Richard has also produced content for CDCR's DRP-TV, which includes My Rehabilitative Journey featuring Richard Morales. He's spoken at the California State Capitol and the Assembly and Senate. Actually, a few days shortly after he came home from prison was the first time he spoke at the Capitol. 
Uh, and there he's advocated for criminal justice reform laws and has been a leader in the efforts for the right to vote for those on parole, which the California voters eventually passed. I'm so grateful that I get to share a little bit of him with you. Let's dive in. I guess we should start here. I've been reflecting in my own life on cultivating a grateful life. And I and perhaps that's something we can talk about a little bit later because you seem like you're a man of gratitude and faith. Um, but I've been thinking about something that you might be particularly grateful about recently, which is that you got married. <laughs> and you know, you spent, I think, like two decades in prison. And I, I guess I want to start with, is this something while you were in prison that you imagined that you dreamed of that you would fall in love again, that you would get married, that you would, you know, find love? Yeah, absolutely. I got married on October 16th, 2021 to my soulmate, the love of my life, Brenda. And I never imagined I'd find someone like her. Mm -hmm. um, I hope to find somebody that I'd be um, compatible with that would be an acceptance of me you know coming out of prison you think about all the stigmas of you know who would love somebody who spent 21 years in there and will I be able to be normal and all those kind of things but from very early on from when we met we were just so similar in our passion for life our love for people love for God love for community she's a mover and shaker in her own right she helps women in the recovery community and she also is a, a powerful help to women who have been victims of um, human trafficking, sex trafficking. Um, she loves family and I, I just couldn't believe that um, she actually liked me. I got the courage <laughs> up after we were friends for a year to ask her on a date. And uh, the first thing she said was, boy, you can't do my life. <laughs> and uh, because she had two step, she has two sons and, um, yeah. and just a lot on her plate like me. And um, what I learned was, um, I think what I learned about relationships in the three years that I've been out is that you truly have to be in acceptance of the person, not only who they are, who they're committed to being, what they're committed to doing with their life, their vision, you know, with crop organization, whom I work for, we are a startup. And there are times when I'll do a 60 hour week. And if mm -hmm. there's if I was going to be in a relationship with someone who for anything above 40 hours, they're angry about, well, then that wouldn't work. Right. Because they'd always be miserable, but there's an acceptance there because she knows that's my passion, um, helping formerly incarcerated people. So, yeah, um, I never imagined it. I hoped in, in truth, I never even really imagined being out until after about 10 years of incarceration. I just want to add for people who can't see you right now that your face sort of just lights up when you talk about her, which is beautiful. And I, I also like that you're cultivating that sort of independence and you can follow your own passions, both of you. She sounds like a curious and fascinating human and also moving together and growing together, um, which is beautiful. I feel like that's, yeah. isn't that what we're all seeking? Or maybe not everyone, but that's, that's what I, I would like and love. Yeah. I just want to say that I, I think that... <sighs> I think the term is interdependence there. And I've seen this with my friends that the person that loves you and that you're in love with and you get committed to, I think it's important that they have their life and their independence and for their passions. Um, she's a DIY girl. She loves to take old furniture and, 
and trick it out and sort of like on with your background with the different colors she likes farmhouse colors and farmhouse decorating and even if even if that doesn't appeal to me that's what she loves can i be an acceptance of that can i support her in that even even work with her and be a teammate on that and then i have things you know like the podcast or or um you know the prison post podcast or I like studying cryptocurrency and non-fungible tokens and, uh, and the, and the metaverse. And for her, you know, that's not too appealing. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, too futuristic and, and that's not appealing, but she allows me the freedom to be uh, happy with what I'm passionate about. So we have, I have my life and she has her life and we have our life together. And, mm-hmm. and um, other than that, I, I really don't, uh, I think it would be hard to be in a healthy and successful relationship without interdependence. Hmm. Absolutely. Um, I want to go back to your beginnings a little bit now. So we're going to rewind. I kind of want to know what shaped you, like, where did you come from? Like, who are the people who raised you? Tell me, tell me about where you came from. My mom, her name is um, Carmen. She got pregnant with me at a young age, actually. Um, it was her first ever sexual experience. And um, it wasn't her intention, um, but she made a commitment to God, even, even though some people encouraged her to get an abortion, um, mainly probably out of her own, for her own safety and well-being. But that wasn't something that she was willing to do. And I'm thankful for it um, because, you know, I get to have the life that I have today. But I was born in Bakersfield, California to her single mom, uh, my dad was the same age as her, and he decided that he couldn't and wouldn't want to be a dad um, at that age. And so my mom's never saw him uh, since she was three months pregnant with me. Wow. And um, had it not been um, for me finding him at the age of 14, I would have never known him myself. But we were very poor. And um, we moved from Bakersfield to the Central Valley of California to a small town called Merced, which is maybe there's a hundred thousand people there to, to us, that was, uh, you know, kind of small compared to some of the bigger cities, but we grew up, uh, I grew up in the housing projects there and are really poor. And, uh, but the thing is, I never knew I was poor. (laughs) Um, there was a lot of love and affection and attention that I received from my mom and my grandparents up until about the age of 10 and a half. Um, and their love, their values, their, their joy, their smiles, I think that's what shaped me and is still in me internally. Um, when I think about the, the most loving and compassionate and wise people that I've ever known, I look to my mom and my grandparents. I feel like and I don't know you very well, but just even from following your social media and the conversations we have, that you are a very compassionate human and have that love in your heart. Is that something you've reclaimed? You said it sort of shifted when you were around 10 and a half, but as you've gotten older, is that something you've uh, sort of rediscovered within you? Yeah. I mean, at 10 and a half, my mom got married to uh, a guy that I believe he loved her and she was fighting for a better future for me and my sister, but he only had, he had four daughters. He had never raised a son. Mm-hmm. And he came from like an old fashioned Mexican background where 
you know, boys belong outside and girls belong inside and women do this and boys do that and men do this. And, and I never, well, I wasn't raised that way, mm. you know, and, and, uh, whereas before I could sit on the couch, uh, with next to my mom watching TV or be in the kitchen on her leg as she cooked and be right next to her. Now, all of that stuff was frowned upon as being unmanly or, mm. or there was, there was something wrong with it. There was something wrong with me for wanting to, you know, be, a mama's boy, you know, yeah. um, but that's how I was raised with love and affection and attention from with from her. And um, and then being at my grandparents house every other weekend or every weekend at times uh, um, to him, he frowned upon that, like you're being a burden to them. Well, let mm-hmm. that come from them. They didn't say I was being a burden. You know, in fact, I had the shirt that said number one grandson, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, so but through time. And he wasn't abusive in the sense of physical abuse or a drug addict or anything like that or an alcoholic, but he was just um, sick when it came to that toxic male perspective. And uh, I'd say over the first year, I came to uh, lose all of those things that were of value to me, the affection, the attention, the acceptance, the security. And I began to grow bitter and resentful mm-hmm. and angry towards him. And the way that I acted out was, you know, at the sixth grade bus stop, um, I just knew that in my heart, he, my mom, this wasn't the right guy for my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she went on to divorce him, but the thing that I hated the most was I felt like the mom that I knew and grew up with was losing her identity. Mm-hmm. She was giving over her identity to who he wanted her to be, I think, and as a 20 something year old, I think that she was doing that because she wanted to build a better life for us. And she thought maybe that's what marriage was about. And she didn't have it all figured out and none of us do. Mm-hmm. And there was no book on it or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I feel for her now. And that's goes back to what I said about love earlier no one should ever want to steal someone else's identity or take away from the person that they met and fell in love with, uh, should want to support and cultivate that. And that was the thing that I was the most angry about that we were no longer allowed to go around our family members. You know, these rigid rules got put in place and I, and I acted out and I rebelled against it. I started hanging out with the, with the gang members at the bus stop. Mm -hmm. I started hanging out with the dudes who smoked weed and, and did drugs and, that was my way of rebelling. That was my way of uh, finding acceptance in another crowd. I was gonna say, is it like a chance to find belonging elsewhere when you feel like you've been stripped of it where you once found it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'd say up until um, my first, about a year and a half into incarceration. So that person, that young person grew to, you know, run away, be a thief, liar, manipulator, um, cheat. Um, that was all part of my rebellion, all part of my hatred and anger for him. Um, you know, uh, sad to say, but, you know, I had thoughts of, you know, how could I, how could I kill this guy? That's how angry and furious I was that I felt our life was stolen from us. And, um, you know, that was, my family and my mom were my greatest sources of love. And when that's taken, you know, it opened up a whole nother Pandora's box for me. 
And it must be confusing as a child, right? Because you know, you know, there's something I think children just are naturally in tune and especially you would receive that love before to know that that's what you deserve. And that's what we all deserve in this connection. So when it's taken away, it must be very confounding and also probably powerless as a child of like, what do you do and how do you get it back? Absolutely. I've, I, I felt very powerless on how to get it back. And when all the, when crying or talking about it didn't work, this seemed to be the next spot. And when that didn't work, when rebellion and becoming a little criminal didn't work, pretty much at the age of 14, I said, I was leaving. I'm going to run away and I'm going to move with an aunt. And he said, go, get out of here. Uh, you know, and that's uh, heartbreaking. let him go. I remember the words, let him go uh, as if yeah. we don't need him. And, um, um, like I said, I hold no resentment toward him or my mom anymore because they were young and uh, figuring it out. And maybe they thought they were teaching me some kind of lesson. And mm -hmm. um, I've let that go um, and forgiven. And I don't hold those resentments anymore. But really, that's what fueled a lot, fueled my criminality later on. Mm -hmm. I went on to graduate from high school um, and barely uh, graduated what was it? Um, 777 out of 779 in my class with a 1.9 GPA. And it was just doing whatever I could. I was still graduated. You know, you know, there's no GPA mm -hmm. on the report card. Yeah. And, um, and then I went to the air force, uh, to escape. But so there was those things going on, like graduating, going to the air force that looked good on the surface, but behind the scenes, once I hit my senior year, halfway through my senior year, I was introduced to methamphetamines. Mm. And I would say that was the demise of it all. And to come back to what you asked about compassion and empathy, mm. that came through once I was incarcerated for 25 to life. Mm. That came through, one, my relationship with God, and then two, 20 years of deciding who I wanted to be in this world mm. and creating a new philosophy and new values based on uh, the person that I would emulate the most and who, who lived the most compassionate, the most loving and the most empathetic life. And to me, that's Jesus. Right. Mm. So I just see that he, you know, he said at one time he looked on the multitudes with compassion and he loved them. Mm. And even in that first century Roman world where there's, you know, women were stigmatized and children and they, they were, Jesus reached out to all people and he loved all people. And at some point in prison, no matter how maddening it was in there and, and how racially segregated and, and um, antisocial, I had to come to a place where I was going to take a stand in my own way, like a miniature version of Dr. King and say, I'm going to be committed to loving all people. I'm going to love God and I'm going to love all people come what may, even if I die in here. And the last thing I would say about that is even for those who are being evil or being haters or are being mean spirited, whether it's kids in school, adults, people committing crime, I think they now my first go to is what are they going through? What have they gone through? Mm. What pain have they experienced to have that way of being that they have today that is so um, damaging? what have they gone through? Um, mm. Is it possible to break through to them? And then anybody, what I've learned about my own criminality was 
to be able to harm anybody, to be able to commit crimes against people or their property, one has to cut off empathy. You have to cut off empathy or else you are not able to harm anybody. If I'm placing myself in your shoes, if I'm experiencing your pain in my heart on what, what would the results of my actions be for me to, you know, take something from you to harm you in any way. If I was to do that, there's no way I could harm you. And so one has to cut off empathy and the work that I had to do in prison and got to do and chose to do not at the, not because of the state required it. The state doesn't require that work, but because I wanted it. And because I think I felt a call from God as he wanted me to become another person. I wanted to turn empathy back on, turn the button back on, right? Twin, turn the switch. And so that's really the message of my life today. And it's a much more empowering way to live. Yes. So, you know, what's so, I feel like delightful and surprising about you. And I feel like so many of the conversations that I have is that I had other plans and then you talk and I think, wow, like I, I couldn't have imagined this and what you say. So I'm going to, I'm going to sort of take us in a little bit of a different direction, but you had mentioned before Dr. King, and you said you talked about love, and I know he's talked about a beloved community. That word is such a, we use it so often, and oftentimes, like, we all have different definitions of it. Like, what what are you talking about when you refer to that kind of, like, public love? Public love is, um, it's courageous. It's selfless. It's giving until it hurts. It's sacrificial. It's, um, a determination to see the best in people, um, to be optimistic for the future, and um, to be a servant. You know, a lot of people know the I Have a Dream speech. I'm somebody who memorized it and, um, and shared it before publicly. And, but the, the words that stick with me from Dr. King the most, and I read a lot of his works while I was incarcerated, um, he said, on the night before he was assassinated, um, I may not get there with you to the promised land. He said, he said, and if, and if I, at my funeral, tell whoever's given the eulogy not to give a long one, he said, and please tell him not to give, talk about the three or 400 other awards that I've won. You know, in other words, don't talk about the doctorates. Don't talk about three or 400 awards. And he says, if you, and if you want to tell him that I was a drum major in college, cause he was a drum major in college, he said, and don't tell him that I was a drum major, tell him that I was a drum major for justice. Mm. Tell him that I tell him that I tried to do what was right. Tell him that I tried to love somebody. Mm. And, um, and uh, man, when I read those words and, you know, it was hard to hear any of his speeches in there, but um, when I read his words, I really saw that he was willing to die to love people. And who's willing to do that? Not too many people are willing to do that. And that's really the best way to live. I mean, none of us, if you ask us if we want to die, we don't want to die. Um, we want to live as healthy as a life we can. But what if it was just as healthy to live in such a way where when push comes to shove, are you willing to love people in a way that could cost you? And I'm not encouraging that um, to those who aren't there yet, but um, all of my reading and studying in prison kind of led me to that point where I'm not going to be a failure anymore. I have failed my family. I have failed God. I have failed society. 
I failed myself. And here I am as a drug addict with 25 years to life in prison. And I'm done with it. I'm done. I'm, uh, I'm not going to be that guy anymore. And so for me, I'm always, I've always been the kind of guy that's extreme. So if I'm not going to be that guy, then who am I going to be on the other end? I'm going to be uh, extreme with how I love people. And it actually protected me in prison um, when, you know, the mafia members or serious gang members, people still committed to criminality, when they see that you're sincere with your transformation, that you really do care about them. I've had mafia members come and say, you know, hey, pray for my mom. Mm. Or can you help me get in this group? Or can you help me with my preparation towards being free one day? Things that you would have never imagined them saying, but they say because they're human too. And they're hurting too. And they weren't always, you know, serious people committed to their criminality. So um, that's how that's how I got there. I feel like it speaks to that almost universal human craving that when you see that authenticity and that love in someone else, no matter what layers you've added on top, like there's this craving for that in, in all of us, that, that freedom. And you're talking about the I have a dream speech and that sort of like radical hope, which I, I feel like in some ways is something that you probably had to face in prison when you're a, a young man and you're sentenced to 25 years to life. Like what, what did hope look like for you? And I don't mean hope in the sense of like just an optimism or a false optimism, but this like real recognizing that there are challenges ahead and yet still holding a vision. And I'm wondering if that was how you went in or if that's something that you developed over time. Yeah, <laughs> nodding your head, no. <clears throat> I was incarcerated in um, August of 1998. At the time, um, people sentenced to life didn't get out of California prisons. I don't think the first person was up until Schwarzenegger become, became governor mm -hmm. in 2008. I never saw a lifer leave prison. Wow. So hope for me at the age of 21 years old, sentenced to 25 years to life, I wasn't even supposed to go before the board until um, December of 2021. Oh my God. <laughs> for an opportunity from 98 yeah. until December, 2021 for an opportunity to be free, not freedom, not a date, not a set date, but an opportunity to plead my case. If it wasn't for laws that came prop 57 here in California, um, and youth offender laws, had those not came into place in the last five years, then I wouldn't be out here already for nearly mm -hmm. three years. So hope. And then when I first went in, um, I didn't have a vision. Um, my vision, well, I did have a vision. My vision was survive, mm -hmm. survive. And to me, that meant get in where you fit in. I wasn't a gang member on the outside an official gang member, but I lived in Southern California. So in California prisons, they um, immediately house you with people from Southern California. And so I started hanging out with that element in prison. And then um, um, my Sally had, at the time, my cellmate, we call him Sally's out here. Um, he wasn't the main guy who was in charge of the yard, but he was a part of a group of leadership that was in charge of the yard on what happened and those things and he also was a drug dealer and so in my mind hey you know get high with him get use drugs do whatever is needed yeah ask knives do whatever is needed to survive to make it to the next year to make it to the next year all i knew was that i didn't want to die mm -hmm. and um i did something in prison that 
I had never done on before going to prison was I tried heroin and I tried heroin with him for the first time in the cell. I also had never injected any drugs into my veins. And for the first time, um, in uh, 1999, I, um, he asked me, do you want to get high? I said, I never got high in that way before. And he really, he wanted somebody to get high with, and we had just went on a long, long lockdown and we, we, and I began, um, um, letting him inject heroin into me. And, um, we used for probably eight months straight, three times a day, heroin. Also, um, they call it slamming, uh, cocaine and methamphetamines. Uh, but one night we did some that was really, really strong, too strong. And we were both pretty close to death. We were both pretty close to um, death that night and could barely move. And he was was a strong guy, a tough guy. And he just kept saying over and over, don't let me die. Don't let me die. Mm. And in my mind, I was saying the same thing, but I wasn't asking him. I was asking God, mm. don't let me die as a drug addict in prison. And um, and while I'm laying there, barely being able to move, feeling like my heart's only beating once every three seconds, mm. knowing that I'm on the verge of ODing and dying inside of a cell, the thought kept coming through my mind. You're going to die as a drug addict in prison. You have failed society. You failed your mom. You failed your grandparents. You failed your family. Now you have failed yourself and now you'll die as a drug addict in prison. Mm. Help me, God. And um, and I just caught, cried out to God in the, the realest way that I knew how. I said, please don't let me die tonight and I'll change my life. And, um, and I won't use again. And that was the last time that I used the next morning. You know, I took a lot of uh, uh, punishment for him for not wanting to get high anymore. Whether it's fighting or or him trying to embarrass me or put me down and belittle me. And, um, I just said, I'm done. I'm done. And he said, you better not bring any of that Jesus stuff in here. And I wasn't even going to Jesus. I was just down <laughs> that I was done Yeah. and that I wanted to have a different life. And in most people in prison, when they say that they're turning to God in some way, and I was, but I wasn't telling him that out of fear. But in my mind, I told God, um, um, I, I want to, I want to be different and I want to serve you. And I don't know what that looks like. And so my hope, I set three goals. I had never read a book before going to prison all the way through. And I set a goal to read 500 books. I set a goal to get in college when I could. I set a goal to read the Bible. And I set a, uh, a goal to take a stand and tell people that I'm not a gang member. I'm not, I'm not a drug, drug addict. And that was my hope. That was my vision early on. Just do that. Just read one book, read two books, read three. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, and I would say that in 2008, I saw a friend of mine get, go to board and get a date. Hmm. And that meant that a lifer was going to go home. Hmm. And I said, whatever he did, I'm going to do a hundred times more. And, um, and then I cast, we cast, I cast a new vision for myself. And, um, but that's how it started for me. Let's, let's talk about trust. Cause I feel like when you, after that night, when you almost, you know, almost die from the drugs and you set off on a new path and a new vision, it's, it's uncertain, like most things in life. And there was, you know, having to stand up to your celly and, and walk away from gang life and everything else that that entailed, which can be scary. How did you lean into trust? 
<laughs> there's a quote that says courage is fear that has said its prayers. Mm. Um, I was afraid every day. Um, how did I lean into trust? I just made a choice. I just said, uh, I have to, I have to take a stand here and I don't know how, I don't know if it'll cost me my life. Fear runs prison. So I was belittled. I was put down. I was told, don't eat here anymore. Don't play sports here anymore. Um, uh, a lame, a loser, you know, in, in there, if you, if you don't go with the antisocial prison norms, if you don't go with prison politics, you're weird. You're, mm. if you live like, like somebody trying to live in there as a responsible citizen is um, considered like anathema. You're, it, it just doesn't make sense to the criminal mind. Mm. People that are committed to that. So how did I do it? I just made a choice daily and, um, and put one foot in front of the other day after day. And it was not easy especially when you go from one level to the next level to the next level or to different yards. And then you have to start all over again. You have to go and have those same conversations with the powers that be and let them know. And then you have to go through one, two, three years of letting them watch you and see, um, are you really the person that you claim to be? Are you, are you really this uh, uh, God fearing person who's just set on, you know, education and helping people, or are you a fraud? And um, in there, it's much more harsh than out here. In there, if I would have smoked a cigarette or gambled or got in one fight or did things that people do naturally out here, you know, then you're a fake, you're a fraud. Mm. So you have to toe a, you have to toe a, toe a line. And I would say that how, part of the how, sad to, sad to admit, is fear. I don't want to die. And I know if I went back to using drugs or violence in any way, then they're going to come for me. And so it was fear and it was also courage. And I know your vision kept growing and you, you know, got your college degree while you were incarcerated, became a drug and alcohol counselor, did lots of community work and giving back. Um, and I feel like that's a whole other episode. I just want to honor that it was um like very powerful and meaningful that the work that you didn't and set out for yourself. But I do want to fast forward a little bit because I want to talk about where you are in life now and, and about your work with crop. Um, so what's, what's interesting to me is that when you eventually, you, you know, eventually got a date, you got set free sooner than, I mean, after 21 years. So I, I don't want to act like this was soon, but um, you know, we're in for life. Uh, a month after I believe you came home, you were offered a job with CROP, uh, Creating Restorative Opportunities Program. And I feel like coming home must be a huge transition, just generally like acclimating to the world again. And after 21 years and so much has changed, what was it like to transition to like a work life? Talk about that. How did, was it exciting, overwhelming, scary? <laughs> How did it feel? I was excited to have a job starting yeah. at a, uh... 3,000 a month, which was, you know, 36,000 a year being 1099, uh, fresh out of after 21 years, uh, not knowing would someone hire me as a drug and alcohol counselor? Would someone hire me as, um, you know, for anything I was yeah. afraid because of the, the, the stigmas, but I'll tell you this, um, the co-founder of crop, a man named Mitch gray, he had met me in prison and I was uh, best friends with his son. 
And six months before getting out, I read a book on podcasting, mm-hmm. which you're doing right now. So yeah. brilliantly. Um, and we said, why don't we do a podcast where we interview formerly incarcerated people? Because there's so many people with transformational stories that go unnoticed. All you see on the news are the bad stories. You never hear the good ones. We knew that there were good stories to be told. So my first job was to create a podcast. Having read one book, um, um, having read one book, six months out, I know nothing about equipment. I know nothing about using a smartphone, a PC, Mm -hmm. a MacBook, nothing about audio editing, apps, websites, (laughs) zero. That was chutzpah. I love it. (laughs) But but what I did know was whatever we put our um, heart and mind to and effort into and immerse, I call it immersion. If I'm going to learn something, I need to immerse. I need to go deep and learn. And um, my boss, uh, Crops co-founder, Mitch Gray, he's been an entrepreneur. He's 64. He's been his own boss since he was 23. Um, And I was early on, he was giving me a lot of empathy and compassion and answering a lot of my questions on things that I didn't know about. But of course, he had his three businesses to run. And so the the, the best advice he gave me one day at five in the morning was, (laughs) if you have questions about this call this person if you have questions about tech call this person if you have questions about finance call this person but you have to stop calling me he said (laughs) you need to stop thinking like an employee and Mm. start thinking like an entrepreneur you're the first leg of the men that will come out and the future of this organization and i want you to start using google and youtube to learn everything you can and don't call me until you can't figure something out until the very end exhaust your resources Mm. and i'm not sure i've had to call them for anything else since then it was a (laughs) wake-up call for me um and instead of wondering and calling people now i just went to youtube which has a video on everything right Mm. and um and uh but yeah i was very scared and i think that um you know i've listened to other entrepreneurs say they still they still run their businesses on fear like a fear fear Mm. of failure and I've always had a fear of failure. I don't want to be a failure anymore. And um, that fear of what will happen if I don't make it um, was a driver. And it was exciting to be able to tell people, yeah, I'm working on the podcast and, and, and you know, doing this and doing that and everything I learned. But it was also terrifying because I knew deep down everything that I knew I, I was going to have to learn on my own. And um, eventually I learned how to work, work on our website. Eventually I learned how to create social media channels and um, messaging and digital marketing. And I just take class after class and webinar after webinar. And uh, I soak everything in. I take notes. I study. Mm-hmm. And um, on our team at Crop Organization, you will rarely hear I can't or we can't. You, you'll hear the opposite. How can we? Mm-hmm. Um and so that mindset, I think that that mindset I, I learned in prison with our team and that carries over out here. Um, no excuses. How can we? There's no I can't. What do you got to do? How do you got to do it? When will you do it by? What's going to be the product? Yeah. And um, 
that's carried me. That's carried me. So. And I feel like it's a a form of accountability, which is something that I I know you did in prison. And one thing that I'm still learning at work and I, and this, the pot, this podcast is called I'm curious, but in my, my day job, I feel like I'm still learning the power of getting curious that when I don't know the answer, um, rather than being like, Oh, can I ask someone or what do I do about it? It's like, what if I get curious? What if I start exploring? Like you said, go to YouTube. Um, so I feel like that's something you've cultivated. And I think it is something that makes entrepreneurs or employees really like impact players, really successful. Um, but I guess since you mentioned the podcast and I've listened to many episodes of your podcast, um, and it's all, and it's so impressive that like you're sharing the story of coming out of prison and six months later, starting this podcast, cause it's, uh, it's very well done. I'm wondering about when you had this idea that these stories need to be told. And now that you've done this for, you know, a little bit of time, what have you learned about the power of storytelling? Why do telling, why does telling stories matter? Why do telling stories matter? First, let me say something about the name of your podcast. I'm curious podcast. That is what stuck out to me the most. We um, are certified coaches as well at, at crop organization. And part of being a coach is being curious. Counseling mm-hmm. is prescriptive. When you, when someone is a counselor, which I'm a state certified counselor as well, but when you counsel, you give prescription. When you coach, you ask questions, you use the mm-hmm. old Socrates, the philosopher Socrates called the Socratic method. And it requires curiosity to get to the root of the issues. Right. And so I love the name of your podcast. I'm curious. And that's what we invite people to do in our coaching and anybody that we work with as an organization, get curious Mm -hmm. instead of, instead of letting the other insecurities or life sentences of, I can't do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not whatever, fill in the blank. What if you got curious? And that's opened up the door for me to be who I want to be and do what I want to do. So perfect name for the show. Love that. Thank you. I'm curious. (laughs) What have I learned about storytelling? So Mm. along the way, not only being, having the job of creating a podcast, my job was also to do all I could also to get my friends out of prison who didn't need to be there anymore. Yeah. So any opportunity I had to go to the state Capitol here in Sacramento to testify before um, the assembly or before the Senate, I took it. And um, one organization called Initiate Justice gave me the opportunity to testify for um, new laws that could come into place, new laws that would add incentives to people who are uh, positively um, serving their time, who are getting college educations, who are getting vocations, who are taking uh, pro-social rehabilitative and transformation transformational um, um, programs, that they would be able to get time off of their sentences. And that would allow my friends and the other co-founder and people who have been with um, crop organization on the inside since day one to be able to get out early. And so I went to the Capitol, I've testified before the Senate and the assembly, four different occasions, public safety Mm -hmm. committee, and um, every law, including the law for those on parole to be able to vote here in California, which needed to go to the ballot and be changed. Every law that I've been a part of has actually changed. Wow. And, And so one day at the Capitol, there's this day called the quest for democracy. When all prison reform groups come together, social justice, 
um, restorative justice type groups come together and they put on one huge day at the Capitol outside and they have all the all the booths are up. Those groups helping women, those groups helping pregnant women, those groups helping um, incarcerated who are elderly, just whatever niche um, type of reform group, they're all there. And while I was going around to all the different booths and meeting all these people like one year out, I realized, wow, every one of these people have a story. Every one of these groups have a story. Every one of these groups has a founder, has an executive director who had a vision for helping people, for restoring people, for taking a stand for um, people to have a second chance. And I began to interview them and get their cards and talk to them and invite them on the podcast. And then the narrative on our podcast changed from just interviewing people who are currently or formerly incarcerated and having them share their transformational stories to interviewing anybody who's in the movement, anybody mm. who's a mover and shaker, anybody who's making a positive impact. And what I've learned about storytelling is, is that everybody who, who's involved in some way, they have a passion. That passion comes from somewhere. Maybe it's um, some type of traumatic experience that they had. Maybe it's um, um, their father or grandfather was in prison. Maybe they don't like to see injustice in the world. You know, speaking of Dr. King, he said yeah. injustice um, anywhere is injustice everywhere. And uh, there's this common denominator in, in these storytellers of people who want to see live in a world that's a better place. Mm. And um, instead of living as a victim and just complaining, um, they are choosing to put their actions behind their vision and live that empowering life of trying to make a difference. So, I mean, I always go after in my, on my podcast, uh, the prison posts, which I say my podcast, but it's a, it's an arm of crop organization. Um, I always go after the, the story of the person. Why did you get into this? What are you doing today? What are your hopes? What are you fundraising for? And you really get to the vision of the person. Yeah. And I'm passionate about that because if you watch TV, which I rarely watch TV anymore, but when I did, there are these shows on like Law and Order, SV mm. and Law and Order, this and, and the narrative that they put out there to society is perpetuating harm for our criminal justice system which is someone committed a crime, whether they're 12, 13, 14, 15, or 20, they need to be locked up for as long as possible. Mm -hmm. And that that punishment will somehow change them. Punishment doesn't change people. Yeah. Right. And 95% of people get out. And what type of neighbor do you want when that person comes out? Um, do you want somebody who's got, um, you know, mindset training, leadership training? Do you want someone who's gotten vocations and um, college? Um, or do you want someone who just sat there and was punished in a dark room and that person's supposed to come out and all of a sudden just be grateful that they're out right. and be this great person all of a sudden? That's unrealistic. Yeah. So um, that's that's it. For, that's about how I would answer that. Yeah. And I feel like that creates like what you're doing with that visioning and getting to people's vision is creating this sense of kinship and belonging that other people who might be in this movement are not sure if they should get into it or feel like they're alone in it. It's like, oh, they see this sort of power and possibility in it. And I mean, that's sort of like the feeling I, I get from some of your episodes. 
I guess my, as you know, a podcaster, I want to learn from you a little bit here too. Uh, I'm curious about. I'm curious. Uh, I feel like stories are sacred, and that when we like everyone, you need to cultivate a safe space for someone to share and like recognize you so that everyone has a story and let them know that it's, you know, it's a safe space and you have a story and it deserves to be heard. Have you thought about or reflected on how you cultivate that space? I don't know if it's a conscious process or just something by your, I think your compassion, your love that sort of radiates, maybe it just happens naturally. No, before, I, I wish that was the case. <laughs> but before I um, have someone on the show, I like to get on calls with them a couple of times, really hear their background, hear their story, ask them questions about what they're comfortable talking about. Most people will say, hey, let's go. I'm an open book yeah. and we'll go where we're going to go. But I know if we're going to talk about um, a traumatic experience, like we got a show coming out in two weeks with a gal who experienced a horrific crime against her family. Um, a whole household was murdered except for her because she was staying um, at a friend's house uh, overnight as a teenager. And I know that that even though she's in her 40s now, that that still impacts her to this day. There's still fear there. And so I want to hear about it before and let her know, of course, through my way of being that I care, that I have compassion, that I have empathy, that those stories are important too, not just the transformation of those who are incarcerated or formerly incarcerated, having compassion mm -hmm. on them, but for those who are survivors or the victims of, of crime as well, being able to take a stand for them and create that safe space because everybody needs healing in some way. Mm -hmm. And so I'll ask them, you know, what is what they're comfortable with speaking about. And I just really want to, I guess they, a lot of people get excited because I want to highlight what they're doing yeah. and what they're up to and the impact they're making. And I think most people come to a podcast thinking like um, um, maybe they're, they're going to be, well, I don't know if it's most people, but like, what is the podcaster going to get from this? What is the, <laughs> I'm not getting paid from it um, right. outside of it. And, 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 um, or how are they going to be exploited? And I want them to know, no, you're not going to be exploited. You're going to be able to share what you want to share about yourself, your person, your work, your vision, your dream, what you're raising money for because we wanna highlight the people who are making a difference in this world, using their time and their talents to impact others for the good. That's really our goal. And to transform the narrative around incarceration in this country and the way people think about the incarcerated and formerly incarcerated and people in the movement. They're not just a bunch of hardcore liberals who wanna open up the door and let everybody free <laughs> and, and increase crime in society. No, we have a high belief in people. Anyone can change. With a crop organization, we have a zero recidivism rate. Nobody who's gone through our programs has ever gone back to prison. Wow. Why? Because we believe in their dignity. Mm. Uh, we, we really pour into them mindset first, because that's the most important. If one mm. changes their thinking, they can change their actions and they can change their future. Mm. Uh, touching on what you were saying about the podcast before and, and inviting guests on and will they feel like, oh, are they being exploited? I think that's why when someone like you says, yes, you know, that you'll be on my show. I think that's such, it feels like such a, a blessing and a privilege that, you know, you would trust me with your story, that you would trust me to witness it and, and hold it. And I imagine you might feel that way too, that when people like say, yes, I'm going to trust you with this. It, it's, um, it's a powerful feeling. Um, 
Oh, I'm, there's so much I can talk to you about. I'm trying to. Um, I also speak. I, go ahead. I, I also, um, you know, I'm not going to say I did my homework on you, but mm-hmm. um, once once I learned of you on, I looked at your Instagram page, and um, I didn't go through every photo or every story or nothing like that. I didn't I didn't have to, but I I saw the your your compassion for somebody with um, mental health challenges. And, and so without knowing you or talking to you, um, just the love that you show to that gal really impacted me. I grew up with a cousin with Down syndrome and have um, some new family in my life who have autism. And um, I just said the other day that I'd rather be around these type of kids than so-called normal kids, right? Because they just have the freedom to be and they're not worried about being uh, ridiculed or embarrassed. And um, mm. um, there's a lot of freedom in it with their challenges, but you know, that definitely helped. Um, and I, I imagine people do the same with me. They, they'll look at the shows and how did he relate to people? How did he talk to people? Was he aggressive? You know, and not everybody can be like old Joe Rogan that just, you know, is, is you know, he's well-known, right. And he says a lot of crazy stuff. And some people have shows where that's the purpose. Right. What's the purpose? The, the purpose is to shock, you know, or Howard Stern, you know, and going on Howard Stern, he's going to shock, right? No, right? Shock jock. Um, but our, our purpose is different. And so when you conveyed your purpose, you know, mm-hmm. to storytell based on curiosity to add um, new light to the world and beauty, um, mm-hmm. I was definitely open to it. Oh, thank you. And obviously that was mutual because I, I always, invite on guests. So I feel that sort of energy from, um, I was thinking for like, there's so much I can explore with you. I'm going to try to just, uh, keep it to one or two more questions. Um, I guess I want to ask you a a little bit about what leadership means to you. I know it, you're, you know, you're a leader in your own right. And at crop, you're also cultivating leaders in in the reentry space. What do you think are um, the qualities of a good leader? Well, I read a lot of leadership books while I was in prison. I left um, having read a close, something close to 800 books. Wow. <laughs> if I was, <clears throat> I'll quote John Maxwell. And he said, leadership is influence, nothing more and nothing less. Now, we know there's been horrible leaders like yeah. Hitler um, and Mussolini and, you know, even modern day people that names may come to mind. Mm-hmm. nevertheless they had influence yeah. and influence moves people now i'm not for influence um, in negative leaders um but how do you gain influence mm-hmm. um one gains influence john maxwell also said people he wrote a great book called the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership and i read that one multiple times probably five or six times and then i read his other book called the 21 indispensable qualities of a leader. Those are two books that I'd recommend to anybody studying leadership. So he said that um, people don't care how much you know, unless they know how much you care. Hmm. And if you're living your life in a way where people don't get that you care for them, most, most of them will not let you lead them. Yeah. Right. But if they see that you care, if they see that you're for them, um, that you stand for 
their commitments, um, then they'll let you lead. But they got to see it first through your actions. And I think that um, some of the great qualities of a leader are number one, humility. Um, um, nobody likes an arrogant leader, right? Yeah. Trusting in people. Um, so arrogant leaders, they try to keep all the power to themselves. But leaders who are secure, they give power away. Yeah. And arrogant leaders, they think that by giving away power, people will take advantage of me. Servant leaders give away power. And what happens is the opposite. People entrust them with more. Mm. Yeah. Right. So because they know they have the best interests of the people in mind. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you think about some presidents that we've had, people would of course, we don't have a king who, or a queen who rule for years and years, but some people would have been happy with some presidents going for more than an eight-year term. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because they believe that they're doing well with the power that the people have invested in them. My biggest pet peeve in life is an, when somebody who claims to be an, a leader acts competent in an area where they're not. Mm. And in an area where you're not competent, the best thing to do is to have a teachable spirit and to humble yourself. Yes. Right. And say, Hey, I, here's, I don't know about this, but I'm willing to learn. Mm. Um, and so humility, service, trust, empowering others, affording people the ability to fail, to fail mm. forward. Yeah, in the old yeah. days. Yeah. In the old days, when you went for job interviews, they would ask, you know, what are your successes? Yeah. <laughs> Nowadays they'll ask you, what, if, what are your failures? Yeah. When was the last time you failed? Why? Because they want to see how you responded to it. Because mm. you're, you're not going to go work, work somewhere or lead people somewhere where you are perfect all the time. You know, you're going to, you're going to fall short. You're going to fail. How did you respond to it? How did you relate to it? What were the conversations that you had with the people that you let down? How did they respond to you when you humbled yourself and, and got accountable and honest and authentic? Are you willing to be authentic? And that's a, and I would ca cap it off with two more. Dogged determination, a leader should be doggedly determined to carry out whatever um, vision or task that he's committed to and commitment, right? Commitment, mm -hmm. commitment is everything. I'm, I'm not for positive thinking that is separated from positive action, yeah. right? So to me, commitment is positive action, putting the actions behind the words, come what may authentically identifying when you fail, I'm going to fail forward, right? I'm going to fail forward. I'm going to, I'm going to own it. And it's empowering to own at crop me and my closest friends. We say, when we mess up, we fess up, we recommit mm -hmm. and go again, mm. mess up, fess up, recommit, go again. And that's one of our mottos. And that helps us to transform lives and heal communities because when people see that authenticity in us, that we are willing to admit our failures, when we're willing to talk about our, our touch, our darkness, talk about, our, yeah. you know, a lot of the people we work with, maybe they were in prison for two or three years, or mm -hmm. they only went to the county jail. They didn't have life. They didn't harm people in the way that we did. When we talk about that, instead of hiding it, um, talk about it with authenticity, um, it endears a trust because most people in this world, they don't live authentically from my experience. 
They want to hide their darkness, but there's power in touching your darkness and being honest about it. Mm, I love that that brings us back to authenticity and the idea of a leader being in there and the integrity of their fullness, bringing like all of you to it, including the darkness, all of those spaces. And I just want to touch on a few of those points. It was such a great list of like what a, a leader is to you. Um, at work, the, the CEO of, of my organization, she always talks about that. She wants her team to take risks. And if you're going to be courageous and take, take risks, then we have to leave room for failure too. And I think it's um, beautiful when people like at Crop too, there's this space where you're allowed to fail, not you know, that there's room to end the fail forward. And the other thing I've been learning as I reflect on sort of the soul of business or bringing the soul to it is how I, as a staff member, team member, employee, blossom when I'm trusted. And I think so many of us do. When we feel that we're trusted, we actually come more alive and probably commit even more fervently to the work that we're doing. Um, so I'm just, I'm just grateful that you, oh, go ahead. Yeah, that you- I, I want to say something to that. What your CEO shared and the way you talked about coming alive, that's another- key quality of a leader, especially of an organization, is a vision for creating a culture, right? Yeah. Culture trumps um, almost everything in organizations. Mm. And if you're creating a culture that, of trust, of authenticity, of inviting people to take risks, even if they fail, knowing they're going to fail, knowing that they're human, then people are more empowered to give you uh, more effort, more efficiency, more ideas. Um, but if you're creating a culture of, you know, walking around on eggshells, then, um, you know, that stymies everything. Yeah. So I love, I love what you shared about that. And um, I think that going into anything as a leader, one of the key ideas that need to be in mind is what type of culture am I trying to create here? What type of culture am I going to create? And for one to create a culture, it starts with your own character. Mm, yes. <laughs> um, I'm going to ask you in a moment where people can find the Prison Post podcast and Crop and anything else you want to share about that. And then I've got one final brief question for you. So tell us where we can find all the amazing work that you're creating and part of. Okay. That's a great question. So our website, first of all, is croporganization.org. You can go there and that'll show you some of the, the work that we're doing now. Um, President Obama's tweets about us. Um, mm -hmm. You can go to our press page and see that we've been highlighted in the Washington Post and San Francisco Chronicle, People Magazine, been on with Gail King, mm -hmm. CBS News, um, Lisa Ling. This is Life with Lisa Ling on um, the, her CNN show. And there's a lot of great things there. As far as on social media, we have basically two different channels crop organization um, on Facebook. Um, you know, we couldn't be crop organization on Facebook because of um, uh, somebody had already taken it. So we are our acronym there, creating restorative opportunities and programs. But um, on um, Twitter, it's crop org one, Instagram crop organization, LinkedIn crop organization, and the rest, you can look up just the prison posts. Uh, on any of the social media channels and for the prison post really what i would like people to do is to go check us out on uh, youtube and you'll get to see i think we have now 46 shows um recorded all video and audio and um and please hit that red subscribe button you know subscribe you'll get a weekly notification i put out a new show every wednesday we kind of took december off 
for the team to rest, but I got a great lineup of people coming on the show this year. I'm definitely going to have links to that in the show notes so people can find it and listen and absolutely subscribe. I recommend it. Um, My last question is sort of to bring us full circle. I started this conversation by saying I was reflecting on gratefulness in my life and just sort of having this revelation that gratefulness might be different than gratitude. Maybe there's things like positive things that are happening that I have gratitude for, but gratefulness is just like the gift of this life and this gift of this breath and, um, but however you want to take this, what you're grateful for, or gratitude for, can you share uh, something that you're, uh, yeah, appreciative of in this moment? The first thing that comes to mind is I'm being grateful to be able to share my story on this show. Mm-hmm. I get emotional because today um, I'm surrounded by people that love me, that mm-hmm. care about me. And the relationships that I have today have been restored. Mm. And that didn't happen overnight. You know, there was a time when people would have uh, identified me as a liar, as a criminal, as a thief, as a drug addict, uh, as an alcohol abuser. And now they don't. Now there's people that think I'm lying when I say that I did heroin at one time. Mm. Um, they, They don't believe it. They don't believe that I was in prison that long. And... It's really a testament to God's work in my life um, and to the people that love me and have given me a chance to be loved again and to um, show them, not prove, but show them that um, I could be who um, my mom envisioned me to be when I was a young boy. Mm. And um, I'm just mainly grateful for my relationships um, whether it be my parents, my grandparents, my my wife, my stepsons, my organization, uh, my colleagues, mm. because I'm surrounded by people who don't talk about loving people. They really love people. Mm. And um, I think the most important thing in life is our relationships. And uh, I really am grateful the most for um, feeling loved by them when when at my worst I feel that I should have been written off and mm. and they didn't and they don't mm. so that's and I just would leave an encouragement for anybody listening right now that if you're feeling hopeless or sad or discouraged or down or unloved um, look to those for some people that may be one or two people in their life but look to those who really took um, a strong stance for you in some way, who didn't stand for you in your any negative commitments, but stood for you in the things that they believed in you for. And look to them and call them. And you'll hear somebody say that I care about you. I love you. And I want the best for you. Um, don't stay in the sadness too long. It's not a good place. I really appreciate hearing or seeing your sort of like visceral emotional response to this because I feel like as human beings on this earth, we're meant to be moved by it, you know, not to be stoic in the face of it, to really be moved by it. I am so grateful that you're here. And I don't just mean on the show, even though I am very grateful that we got to share this conversation, but just here in this world, walking this planet, free walking this planet so that you're able to do the 
moving and meaningful work that you're doing. This has been such a delight. I'm so glad that, you know, we've been talking about this for a while that we finally got to really sit down and I got to get to know you. Um, this conversation is definitely going to sit with me for a long time. Thank you, Ashley. I need to know everything. Who in the what in the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in science, then let them in, talk up their body, another one body, that's just how it go. I got some secrets, I'm shaking the game so they stay on their toes. Stay in your lane, I to stay on the go. I came to play with the pros and act like a rookie, so they overlook me, then I double up again, none of their nose, none of them cold. They just got lucky but never adapted, so I'm to the one if it's coming to blows. My enemies cutting it close, I let them think that they got me, but what do you know? I had them beat before we ever spoke, I'm ready for smoke. I need to know everything, who in the what and the where, I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche, five and a horse, I'm ready for war, I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost, I need to know everything.